and that we would hear it well and that we would take it to heart. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So Exodus 20, verse 13, the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. That's it. I'm done. <laughs> right? A simple, straightforward statement, right? You think that it's like, you know, something that's, um, what else can you say about that, right? Don't murder, don't kill people, period. Full stop if you're British. But au contraire, mon frere, right? If I say that correctly, my French is probably not good. But we are adept, we are very adept in getting around a word, are we not? Um, whenever we want to get around something, we just start to redefine things. And we see that quite a bit in our society right now. And you know you're doing it, or someone's doing it, when, when they ask in a skeptical tone, well, you know, what is murder really? I mean, like, how are we defining the term? <laughs> you know, and you know, so you end up asking questions, well, is abortion really murder? When is it a person really? Things like that. What if I shoot to kill but they live? Is that really murder, you know? Uh, is, if, if I disagree with your politics and I destroy your life to the extent that you can't get a job and everybody hates your guts now and all that kind of stuff, is that murderous or is that justice, right? Masters of rhetoric, experts at evasion. <laughs> we have many words uh, for murder which we might choose to manipulate, right? And I could list them all from the, li- the dictionary, but I won't. Uh, But, you know, the taking of a life can be as evil as we just saw in Philadelphia a couple weeks ago, I think it was, where seven kids beat a man to death with a traffic cone. Kids 10 years old into their mid-teens. Late at night, just guys walking down the street. Three girls, four boys just start attacking him. 73-year-old the guy was. No apparent reason. That's e- that seems evil to me, right? Or it can just be sadly tra- tragic, like when I was in high school and someone left a party with their friends in the car and they were a little bit drunk and they, they aimed their car at what they thought was a trash bag on the road, but it turned out to be another party goer laying there passed out from the party. That's tragic. And, uh, you know... You think about those things, both of those situations really do have a lifetime of choices and of decisions and of influences which led those people to those moments, right? We are actually the culmination of all that's been developed in us, or all that maybe we should say that we have developed in us, too, but outside influence as well. Those seven children, I would guess... Not that I'm making this blanket statement on them, but I would guess they probably don't have ideal home lives. I mean, 10 years old, you're out in the middle of the night. What, you know, what's, where's mom and dad? You know, that kind of thing. But, you know, we know good, you know, kids from good families do evil things too. We know that as well. So I'm not making a blanket statement on them. But, and and the, if you know the story, this is back in like 1984, 85. I graduated high school in 85. Uh, the one who was ultimately charged with murder or a crime in my story uh, was the mother of the kid who threw the party because she had bought all the booze and she was there with the kids drinking with them when they held the party. So this commandment is therefore a, a little bit more complicated than we would like to admit. Don't, don't, don't murder, right? Don't kill. According to the scriptures, 
murder cannot be defined so narrowly. The, the real issue behind this sermon today is the word love or the concept of love. God's revealed word as found in the Bible directs us to love one another and we are in obedience to the sixth commandment when we do that, when we love well. If not, then we are at least on the brink of being murderous, right? Since murder begins in the heart with ungodly intentions or thoughts towards another person. In the, in the novel uh, The Secret History by Donna Tartt, they a group of affluent college students decide to murder a close friend of theirs. And as the novel unfolds, at first it appears that they are going to do this because he knows about an albeit accidental death that they had caused earlier in, in, in the story or earlier in life. But as the story unfolds, it becomes really clear that the decision to murder him isn't rooted in self-preservation or avoiding the law, but the simple fact that he's annoying and they don't want him around anymore. And that novel is sort of a chilling look into the human psyche, uh, reflective of what God already knew about the human heart, right? When God gave the sixth commandment to Israel... He knew that there was more to it than don't simply kill people or don't literally kill people. God understood a lot goes into the decision to commit murder, and none of it is okay. None of it. The secret history highlights another challenge that, to obeying this commandment in our society that we are becoming desensitized to violence. Uh, it is estimated that uh, by the time a child finishes uh, elementary school, elementary school, they will have witnessed 8,000 murders on TV. That, that when they reach 18, they will have seen uh, 200,000 violent acts on TV. And I think that's low, right? And Jesus recognized that what we saw, what we put into ourselves, had a direct impact on our spiritual health or emotional health, or health at all, all levels, right? In Matthew chapter 6, verses 20 and 23, or 22 to 23, he warned us to make sure that we do not fill our lives with darkness. This is a convicting thought if you think about it. And being obedient to this command isn't simply avoiding physically harming somebody, but guarding against inviting violence into our lives. What are Christians supposed to reflect? Right. On the surface, this seems simple. This, you know, don't commit murder. And we, we don't want to gloss over the importance of this command. God doesn't want us killing people, in a sense, exactly because all people are precious to God. I, I, I just don't get how anybody can accuse the Christian church of not caring or not caring. We've, we've always preached this, right? While not everyone in the world has chosen to, to become a child of God, everyone is created in His image. Everyone has that inherent value about themselves as a creation of God. And that alone means that everyone is deserving of respect and of honor and the preservation of life, right? And that's the point of Genesis uh, chapter 9, verse 6, which says, Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind, right? So when you shed the, the blood of a human being, 
when we attack another person in any way, we are attacking the very image of God. These are basic things that should be driving us. We're wounding God himself in a sense, attacking, criticizing, and degrading that which God made constitutes the same on him. The point of this command is very simple. We should not murder anyone in any way, remembering that the command extends beyond ending someone's life, literally, that it also begins in the heart, begins in our thinking, it begins down deep in our soul. But people oftentimes uh, say, well, I haven't killed anybody, so I'm good on that one. I could just skip over that one, <laughs> right? Exodus 20.13 leaves us wiggle room in a sense. If it, you know, if, if it leaves us any wiggle room at all to manipulate the words and, and leave open doors, enter Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Who points to, uh, points, uh, puts a point on it for us in Matthew chapter 5, and that is our parallel passage today. We've been doing a parallel passage in the New Testament for all these commands. And here he leaves no wiggle room, does he? He leaves absolutely no out. And this is, this is where uh, it really gets down and dirty with us, isn't it? He says, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, remember that little phrase, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Mm. And again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, which basically just means worthless or empty-headed or stupid, right, is answerable to the court, Sanhedrin, right? And anyone who says, you fool, <laughs> will be in danger of the fires of hell. Think about that. Think about that just for a moment. How many times this week, and, or just one day of this week, even if just in your head or by yourself alone in your car driving around, did you say, you idiot, you jerk, <laughs> right? Or worse, right? You're all good Christian people, but I know you say it, right? <laughs> Raka, stupid. You idiot. And so from that, we see how high are the standards of God. How high are the, is the moral law of God. How, how intensely important this is. We may think it doesn't matter what others don't hear or see from us, but when we reinforce ungodly images in our own minds towards others, it makes it that much easier to treat them with contempt or treat them in murderous ways, hurtful ways, harmful ways. It makes us unloving towards them, murderous, even just in our attitude towards them. It's not taking on the heart of Christ internally at all, and it does something to our soul, right? It's not harmless. I'm reminded of when Jesus was on the cross and he said in Luke chapter 23, verse 34, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. So they're nailing him to the cross. They're crucifying him, and he's still praying for them. Would I do that? I'm not sure I would. Boy, it's been convicting writing this sermon, driving from New Jersey back to here, 
<laughs> after the conference <laughs> on the turnpike. You idiot. Oh, Lord. It just, it, it is really convicting. Jesus' counter word there, but, or this little phrase, but I tell you, begins in verse 22. And there he expands this sixth commandment to cover all hostile words and feelings which readily lead to violence. Anger, no less than murder, makes one liable to judgment. And anger expressed in harsh invectives sort of merits judgment in the highest quarter. So we have the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem was the supreme court of Judaism. And then we have hell or Gehenna mentioned here, which represents the final judgment of all history. So just me driving down the road saying idiot rings, rings in all of those, those things, right? In all of this, Jesus' point is not that his hearers should go revising the legal code and punish mere hatred and anger. You know, that's not what he's saying. His intent is instead to show that every act or emotion which threatens life in one's community violates God's will. I certainly need a Savior. (laughs) I'll tell you that. Jesus continues in verse 23, he says, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and therefore remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Now, being a pastor, I have a lot of people in this world that hate me, right? And I struggled with this one at first, and I studied a little more, and it really means that I've actually done something to hurt you, right? That I've done something wrong. I'm not sure that's always, so it's not saying that just, just because somebody's mad at you, you can't come, come take communion or something like that. It's saying that if you know that you've done something wrong, go and make amends for that, right? Verse 24, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them, and then come and offer your gift, right? So two related sayings, verse 23 and 24, and then verses 25 through 26, pursue the theme of, theme of anger here as a problem in the church. And it is a problem in the church. But let me, let me just take a side note there and say that the church tries its best to deal with these things. I, I'm, I'm not sure I know of any other organization in the world that actually calls its members to repent from the heart and change their behavior towards each other, Right? So we have to remember that. We try, well, try to do this well, but we don't always do it well, right? But there is grace for that. So here the issue is what to do when offense on our part causes enmity or brokenness in the church or in relationships. The first saying reflects a setting of worship in the temple, and it states a, a precondition for offering sacrifice before we can go and find peace with God and worship. This, your worship is impeded by these things, right? We must first make peace with our brother or sister. The second saying is a parable about the wisdom of settling a lawsuit. Before it gets to the court, Matthew uses the parable with its note of eminent judgment, right, to deal with the human relations. Act with haste, he says, to reconcile your differences with one another. Keep short accounts, right? Uh, Keep your side of the street clean. Work on this, right? It says in verse 25, settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking it to court. Do it while you are still together on the way. 
Or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. I I would guess that many a problem in the world would be solved very quickly by saying, truly from the heart, I am really sorry. Right? I, I am so sorry that I did that to you, or I said that to you, or I treated you that way. So many things just pours cool water on hot coals, doesn't it? So we are to love one another. And we are in obedience to the sixth commandment when we do so. But, well, what is love really, right? Well, you know, how are we defining that term? Because we always want to get around the command. We always want our wiggle room, don't we? We want to have a way out. Well, God is love. And all that God commands is loving. God's word is loving even when it is corrective or disciplinary. That's something we have to remember. We have to remember that love without truth lies and truth without love kills, doesn't it? We've all been guilty of either one of those. Love does not completely accept and tolerate all behavior and desire since personal behavior and desire is sometimes hurtful to the person themselves or to the community around them and usually both. The famous chapter on love in the Bible is 1 Corinthians 13, which we regard as the wedding chapter, right? But it really goes far beyond love expressed in marriage And it extends to every single relationship, doesn't it? Listen to what it says. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. If I could give all, my, my, all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may, boast, might, I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, But when completeness comes, when we're finally with the Lord, right, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in in a mirror. Then we, we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully even as I am fully known. And now these three things remain. Faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. I could preach 40 sermons on that passage, right? I'm not doing it justice at all, just reading it out to you. But those three things are like the three legs of a stool on top of which is seated God himself, God's truth himself, upholding it all, right? 
It's frustrating, right? When, you, when you're totally right about something, you're absolutely right. But one, the one who listens, uh, no one will listen to you since they only hear anger in your voice. They only hear hatred in your voice. That's frustrating. Knowledge is confirmed by love. All these things are confirmed by love. It's not saying that knowledge or prophecy or good works or great faith, etc., and so on and so forth, all those things listed are unimportant. It's not saying that at all. But those, those things only carry weight with people when you, they see you as loving them when you say them, which, to be honest, is difficult in our day and age. Everybody is so stinking raw in their emotions. The slightest bit of correction is... It's like a time bomb just waiting to go off. Jesus' words in Matthew 5, 21 through 26 are a powerful challenge to all of us who chose to follow him or uh, who have found ourselves following him. Jesus is saying that anger and hatred towards others is murder in your heart. The Heidelberg Catechism expands it in this way. It says, by forbidding murder... God teaches us that he hates the root of murder, envy, hatred, anger, vindictiveness. In God's sight, all such are disguised forms of murder. And this, of course, is the challenge to all of us, right? How often have you had anger in your heart towards another person? How often have you, in anger, called someone a name like fool or idiot or worse? In this command, God's Condemning not just the action, but the root of it, right? The root of murder. So how do we obey this command if it's more than simply just killing somebody? Because I would, I would venture to guess that not one of you in this room has ever killed somebody, like literally, right? Now, we have had people that have done that in our church before. Um, it's possible, but I don't think any of you have done it, Right? Well, this command is best obeyed not by the negative action of avoidance, right? But in a positive action, the call or the command to love somebody, right? We've stated in this series repeatedly that Jesus' response in Mark 12 to love God and to love others is, is a summary of the law, of, the, of, of God's moral law. We see here how that command to love others comes into play, right? In John uh, 13, 34, and 35, Jesus gives us a new commandment. He says that we love one another. And then he says, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. We are commanded by Christ himself to love people just as he loved us. That's a tall order. What does that mean, right? To love them sacrificially, right? But let me say something in I don't think it's unconditionally. I mean, I think it's unconditionally in the sense that we should always have an affinity towards people and love them and respect them and honor them as a creation of God. But what I'm not saying is that they can do whatever they want. That's, not un- that's really not unconditional love. That's not love at all. Just, oh, do whatever you want. I don't care. That's not love at all, right? As Jesus puts it in the Sermon on the Mount, to love even our enemies <laughs> and pray for those who persecute us. Whoa, wow. I'd be praying all day sometimes, right? 
It's a remarkable turnaround, right? In a society where extreme dehumanization has become the absolute norm, Jesus' commands here, if, if, if we live them out, can be a breath of fresh air to everyone around us in this society. And that's the point of this command. Jesus goes on to say in John 13, 35, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So the question becomes then, not how good are you at, at, at obeying the command not to hate other people or not get angry or not hold malice towards others or envy in your heart or not to actually kill somebody, right? But how effectively are you loving others just as Christ has loved you? That's the real question. Because a focus on the law can, can inspire one of two responses in us. It can inspire pride. Well, I haven't killed anybody. I'm, I'm pretty good right there, right? Or it can invite despair, right? Without the gospel, disconnected from, from the grace of God as found in Christ, that's what it pr- can produce in us. And in the first case, we might look at this list of rules like the Ten Commandments and we might compare it with our lives. And, and if we're doing more good than bad, then we decide that we're good people. Do good people go to heaven? I want an answer. Do, no, they don't. None of us are good. Only God is good. Right? Right? So in the eyes of God, that's not how it works. <laughs> Every sin deserves death. Every sin, no matter how small, deserves death. Romans 6.23. And if you break any one of these commandments, you deserve the wrath of God. And let's be honest, we've all broken a lot of them all the time. Jesus shows us the seriousness of this command. We may think, well, I haven't committed murder, but Jesus makes it clear that the command goes much, much deeper than that. Thinking about the sixth commandment in light of the broader command to love your neighbor as yourself can unveil our failures and reveal the depth of our sin in us and push us towards Jesus, right? In response, we may find ourselves, though, just without thinking that way, without being pushed to Jesus, we might find ourselves on the brink of despair, feeling like Paul in Romans 7.24 when he said, wretched man that I am. By the way, I think everybody in the world needs to come to that realization. What a wretched person I am. Because that's the point of salvation. Who will deliver me from this body of death? I can't get around it. I can't be good enough. And in that moment, like Paul did, right, we can remember the good news that he states following that question. He says, thanks be to God. He did it for me, who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's what he says. The grace of God makes us right with God, not because of our adherence to the law, but because of Jesus' perfect obedience to the law and his sacrificial death for us. Regardless of how well you follow the law, you'll never follow it enough to satisfy God. It's an impossibility. The law revealed sin in us. It didn't make us good. That doesn't mean that we stop, though, right? doesn't mean that we do not strive towards it. We don't use it as an excuse to cut corners in life, right? Like Paul said in Romans 6, we cannot use it 
use God's grace as an excuse to sin. We must regard ourselves as having died to sin and being made alive in Christ. It's a big difference there. And we see that these commandments please God and they encourage us, they, encourage us, they push us to love Him and to love others as Jesus said, right? And as He expressed and He modeled. And we see that these commandments are good for society and for all of our relationships and good for our own soul when we walk with them well. But we also recognize that following them will not save us. And when we fail, there is grace for that. Amen? Amen. Let's take a moment, just like we have for all these sermons, we're just going to take a moment to sort of confess to the Lord where we've fallen short in this area. Maybe you have relationships in your life where you've been really angry with somebody and you've treated them badly. Just confess that to the Lord. And you may today or this week need to go and make uh, amendments with those people. And that, that's good for them, but it's good for you too. It, it, it takes something, it takes a blockage out of your worship in life. And it, and it builds your soul in Christ really well. So let's, let's just take a moment. I'll open this and I'll close it and I'll give you some time in between. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would bring that joyous conviction on us for this commandment and for your words uh, later as you walk this earth on the Sermon on the Mount. We ask that you would bring conviction of where we fall short, where we do not consider those people around us, in front of us, even the people on the news as creations of yourself, that you made them, that they have an inherent value because of that. Convict us now.